Danny Ratliff joining me this morning, of course, certified financial planner, talking a little bit about Biden and taxes and all that other kind of good stuff, right? Because if the Cong if Congress, which is on recess right now, uh, if they don't raise the debt limit and get some funding passed for the Treasury, the Treasury will hit their X date in November, which means that they will no longer be able to pay bills without emergency. And they're on emergency measures now to pay their bills. Um, and of course, that means, you know, problems potentially for other kind of non-mandatory spending. Now, this is something that's very important to understand. And this is where everybody gets all up in angst about the debt ceiling. They go, oh my gosh, if we run out of the debt ceiling and we don't get it raised and we run out of money, well, people aren't going to get their Social Security checks. Absolutely not the case. <laughs> no matter what happens, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits, the military, they get paid. Those are all fall under mandatory spending. What doesn't get paid potentially are non-mandatory items in the budget, like Department of Education, which is teaching critical race theory. Don't know if that's a big loss or not. Since 1980, the uh, education level in the U.S. has dropped markedly relative to the rest of the world ever since the government got involved in education. So maybe not funding them might not, might not be a bad idea. <laughs> but that's the big worry, right? So don't worry. Social Security checks will get mailed out in accordance. No matter what, they get paid. And then once the debt ceiling gets raised and Congress passes their budget or whatever they're going to wind up doing, Everything goes back to normal. So, and again, this is why we haven't had a budget since 2008 was the last budget that we actually had run by Congress. 2008, think about that. That was, you know, over a decade ago. We've gone two, three, and we're in our third administration now without having a budget. And we're now relying on these continuing resolutions to help fund the government. So basically all that says is, is hey, Continuing resolution simply, what did you spend last year? I spent $4 trillion. Okay, we'll give you $4 trillion plus 8%, and that's why our debt keeps going up and up and up and up because we just use this baseline budgeting of 8% growth every year for all the budgets. We don't actually run a budget. Nobody's actually looking at the books. This is essentially having a bunch of children and uh, in your house, and you give them a big pot of money and say, okay, make sure this lasts for the whole day. <laughs> It'll be gone in about five minutes. So this is what's happening in Congress. Anyway, uh, speaking of Congress, governments, and you know the end of capitalism as we know it, <laughs> in many cases. Um, two other things. Yesterday, interesting outcome. El Salvador announced that they will now be accepting Bitcoin as legal tender. Sounds awesome. Right. This is this is what the cryptocurrency crew has been hoping for, is that somebody would accept and acknowledge Bitcoin as legal tender. What does that mean? That means that as a legal tender, you can use it to buy anything within the country. Right. So in El Salvador, you'll be able to go down to, um, you know, Starbucks or El Starbucks, whatever they call it. <laughs> in El Salvador and, and buy a cup of coffee, right? With Bitcoin, right? So you don't have to convert it back into dollars in order to use it. You can actually buy it with Bitcoin. And promptly upon the announcement, Bitcoin fell by almost 20% intraday as large positions started to liquidate. Coinbase, the new uh, IPO of the company that just came out that is a transaction exchange for cryptocurrency, 
actually locked up. They had so many orders coming in to sell, they couldn't process them. Orders were getting canceled. It was a complete nightmare. Margin accounts were getting liquidated. And yesterday, this is a chart, if you're watching our live stream right now, of a chart of uh, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust up but a very sharp drop in Bitcoin itself. Doggy coin, as an example, dropped below 25 cents yesterday. It was just a disaster. Um, and so the question really is twofold. One, if you listen to Kathy Wood, she was very optimistic about El Salvador acknowledging and accepting Bitcoin as a, crypto, as a legal tender. She says this is the first step. This is great for it. Um, the other problem is, I guess, from the other, the other argument is, is, El Salvador's country, El Salvador as a country, has a bit of a spotty past. Is it really that great for a country like El Salvador to be accepting it as legal tender, right? So, you know, considering that about 40% of cryptocurrency is used for illegal transactions, you know, is El Salvador really the country that <laughs> you want to have representing Bitcoin as legal tender? Um, that's an argument that you can have. Uh, all day long about Bitcoin, is it, isn't it, whatever. But here's the real problem that, that really kind of brought to the surface yesterday with Bitcoin. If I was in the middle of a transaction with somebody, I was selling product, and let's say I was shipping product from the U.S. to Mexico, and I had it on a truck, and it was going to be in Mexico within 12 hours, right? And so within a 12-hour period, I've got a product to be delivered, and I'm going to get paid for that product, and I'm doing it in Bitcoin. And all of a sudden, I lost 20% of the value of my shipment by the time the shipment gets there. That's, that's generally my entire profit margin or more uh, for manufactured products. So the problem becomes trade, ultimately, with cryptocurrency at this point, and it's just any cryptocurrency, you can't have a cryptocurrency swinging 20% in a day and execute well on having some type of trade, right? So as a producer or manufacturer, as a, as a customer receiving it, what I'm paying for it, what I'm receiving for it, can't be swinging around 20% in a day. So ultimately, the weakness of cryptocurrency as a legal tender for say somebody like the United States is really twofold. One, it's the depth of the currency uh, to be able to handle a trillion dollars worth of transactions. That's one problem. The other problem is the volatility of it. And until there is a, a situation to where the volatility slows down and you're not having these 20% declines and advances and runs all over the place. I mean, we just ran up 20% or so in Bitcoin. Now you just gave it all back up. In fact, you know, you just round trip the entire price of Bitcoin in a month. So you can't have that kind of volatility in currency um, in order for it to be a part of an economic system, a viable economic system. Um, it'll be interesting to watch how this works in El Salvador. But again, it is something that highlights the continued problems here. Again, nothing wrong with cryptocurrency. It's a speculative asset right now. But for it to be adopted as a legal currency and as a legal tender to essentially replace the U.S. dollar as a currency, go completely digital, you've got to somehow figure out how to eliminate those swings of volatility and, and have something more stable. And at that point, that's why ultimately probably the Federal Reserve or uh, some, some government, uh, one part of our government or another, 
will come up and it'll be, it'll be the Treasury of the Fed come out with a digital currency at some point. We are moving in that direction. There's absolutely no doubt about that because it's great for the, for the country to be able to track every single dollar wherever it is at any time where it's located and be able to track the flow through the economy. Um, that's a very important function for government. So again, when we get to that point, that'll be what we start to see here become actual legal tender. It'll be a government issued tender. It won't be Bitcoin in the US, simply not large enough, not deep enough, and currently right now too volatile. When we come back from the break, we'll pick up with Danny Ratliff. Got to talk about taxes. 61% of households paid no taxes last year. So we're talking about tax the rich. What does that mean? We're going to talk a little bit more about Congress, what's happening right now with the spending bills that are coming up, uh, Biden tax plans, and what about taxing buybacks? There's a, there's a novel idea. We'll come back and talk all about that with Danny Ratliff right after the break. Don't go away. Danny Ratliff, certified financial planner and uh, beard model. If you're watching our live stream, Danny's been growing this beard. So, so exactly when when is the what is the trigger to get you to cut your beard this time? Is it when the market actually corrects, or what are we working on here? Man, that's not a bad idea. I was actually thinking of when I can walk again, but um, you know, I don't know which will happen sooner. Hopefully, walking. <laughs> oh, well, yes, hopefully walking. Uh, actually, we'll we'll get into that this morning. Morgan Stanley suggesting that uh, we may see a correction before year end. Um, so a couple of things here. I was just talking a little bit about El Salvador and, and what's happening with uh, Bitcoin a second ago. But also one of the other kind of interesting highlights this morning, you know, there's been a lot of conversation here as of late about let's tax the rich, right? The rich need to pay more. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's great conversation um, and it makes for great headlines because everybody hates the rich, <laughs> you know. Um, and they need to pay more taxes, but the top 10% of income earners pay about 80 to 90% of all the taxes already. Um, it was an interesting, interesting chart out this morning showing that 61% of households, and these are mostly the households in the, in the, you know, this is like the lower 61% of households actually paid no taxes. And they actually, and when you get down to the 20% of income earners, they're actually getting money back from the government every year. So there'd be tax credits and all these type of things. And so, you know, I, th I just thought it was an interesting situation here because we keep trying to figure out a way to tax people that make money more money, which is actually detrimental to economic growth because, again, as you tax them more, um, they tend to be the business owners, right? So let's go after those guys like Amazon and, and let's get Jeff Bezos and let's go get you know Elon Musk and Bill Gates. Let's, we need to go get those guys and make them pay more taxes. Don't forget, they run companies and they have product that you buy. And so if you tax them more, all they're going to do is raise the cost on the goods and services they provide. And this is the one thing that people kind of miss is that's the trickle-down effect that we always talk about in government, right? It's like, what's the trickle-down? The bottom 20 to 30% of income earners, they may not pay any income tax, but they actually have the highest tax rate in the country because about 60 to 70% of all their income goes to just paying for living needs, if not more. In a lot of cases, it's, it's even more than 70%. But when you raise the cost of goods and services they use, that's the tax they pay, and they get hit the most by it. 
Well, and, and that's exactly right, Lance. That's a big problem is that we don't see the wage growth keep up with the inflation. And you want to talk about an inflationary environment that they're creating. This is mm -hmm. going to have a lot of negative connotations to it. I mean, this is a very aggressive tax hike, what they're trying to accomplish. They're looking at, you know, raising the individual tax bracket. There's no... There's no question on that. I think that that's going to go up. They're looking to raise that from 37% to 39.6. You also have that 30 or that 3.8% Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare uh, stipend on top of that for top income earners. Um, they're looking at raising capital gains rates all the way up to that 39.6. That one may be a little more aggressive. There is some pushback even amongst Democrats with that. Um, you know, step up in cost basis, the estate tax. You want to talk about something that's going to be extremely detrimental. It's those two things. Think about small business owners, people that own land, ranchers, farmers. Um, that is going to have a lot of negative connotations. In fact, the regional economic models did a study and said that over 10 years, this is violently, violently going to tax people and it's going to cost 745,000 jobs on the low end. And the Treasury Department is saying that this is no big deal. Look the other right. direction. We've run our own analysis. It's okay. But they're looking at raising corporate taxes, doing a mark-to-market for taxing unrealized capital gains. They're even going as far as wanting to, like you just uh, alluded to, taxing buybacks, looking at an excise tax, and taxing corporations whose CEOs make more than the average mm -hmm. employee. Which those CEOs are in those positions for a reason. Now, granted, they've certainly found a way to some loopholes to game the system here. Right. You know, making you know millions and millions of dollars each year. But at the end of the day, I mean, there, there, this is a lot that's on the on the docket here. Right. And you have all these these you know these uh, what is it, the environmentally friendly taxes? Yeah. They want to tax a barrel of oil. We want to tax the, your carbon footprint per ton. I mean, this is a lot. This is a very aggressive thing. Now, I think that many of these are going to be difficult to get through, but their agenda has been pushed up. They want to start voting on this September 15th right. and on October 1st. So they want to have both these bills, uh, the bills through. So, you know, one thing that they're doing right now is the $1 trillion infrastructure bill and the $3.5 trillion, you know, social program or welfare bill. They're not putting those two together. So they may have a difficult time getting some of these through. I expect there's going to be a lot of horse trading. Yeah. The, 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 look, the $3.5 trillion human, uh, what they call the human infrastructure bill, um, will we'll get paired back. It's going to get paired back. Uh, it'll be, you know, if I had to guess, probably somewhere around trillion, trillion and a half, probably in line with the infrastructure bill. That's still a lot. I mean, you're still talking about two, two and a half trillion of additional spending. But I, I kind of want to run back through these taxes because. Real quick, because there's a there's a lot of these are, you know, kind of wish list taxes, but there's also some some taxes that really may not uh, that you know I'm not going to argue with. I'm going to say, hey, there might be a benefit to a couple of these tax ideas. Um, one is is the taxing of buybacks. You know, we have talked about buybacks for a long time now. It's been one of the the major problems, and it's and it's the direct impact to the to the spread between CEO compensation, or I should just say executive compensation uh, versus workers. And, you know, if you're an executive in a lot of these companies, um, Jamie Dimon is a good example, was just granted like $750 million worth of stock options. He's the highest paid bank CEO in the country. He makes a massive amount of money relative to the, the average worker 
at, at, at J.P. Morgan Chase. And look, he, it, uh, he's run a very successful company. He certainly deserves to be well compensated. But there's a point where that compensation gets a little, you know, I don't think you can argue it's gotten just a bit excessive um, relative to the job he actually performs. And that strips away money that should be going back to shareholders of companies, either through dividends or some other some other form of compensation. Um, and the job of any CEO of any company is to ensure their shareholders make money. That's their job, ultimately, and that's how they should be compensated. Uh, so the tax on stock buybacks is interesting because that would potentially slow or greatly reduce a lot of this capital that's been over the course of the last decade in particular shoved back into stock buybacks because companies are opting for basically improving their share price uh, to keep their stock price high so that their executive compensation increases because of their stock the, the stock buybacks that they're doing and the impact on their on their on the shares they own um, versus investing in new capital plant equipment raising wages you know those type of things for employees so there may be an actual uh, you know it's not a terrible idea I'm not sure it's the right approach um, in fixing the stock buyback problem, but it would certainly potentially head in the right direction. Your thoughts? Well, if, if we ever saw higher interest rates, I think that would help eliminate some of the problem as well, because mm -hmm. money's so cheap, they can go out and, and issue debt, turn around and go buy stock. And of course, it's, it's, you know, filling their coffers and everybody's bank accounts are going up if you're on that CEO or the executive level. So these guys love it. And they're all thinking short term because they don't need mm -hmm. to worry about this in 10, 15, 20 years. They're going to be out the door with their golden parachutes. Right. Uh, you know, they, they've got a pretty good gig there. And so I think that, you know, those two things are going to go hand in hand. But what happens when you have a market where the breadth is so little, you know, you have so little volume. And if you look, it's a lot of the corporations that are pushing, yeah. you know, these things up. What what well, happens then? But, but, but do you do you have pr true price discovery, Lance? That's well, going to be no. the key. Look, this is look. If you go back to 2016, 2017 in particular, and we wrote articles about this, stock buybacks made up nearly a hundred percent of all the net purchases of stocks in the market. So, stock buybacks were were holding the markets higher. And I will bet you by the end of this year that we're going to see a lot of the same thing. That this that a lot of the stock buybacks that have been done because look, the, these stock buybacks are being done in billions of dollars. They swamp the retail investor. Um, so I, I have a suspicion by the time we get to the end of the year, we'll look back and go, yeah, it was another year where 90 or 100% of the entire net purchases of equities came from co corporations. So, you know, uh, you know, the problem with higher interest rates is that impacts everybody. That impacts the little guy. It impacts the middle guy. It impacts the worker uh, because they live on debt primarily. Um, so, you know, higher interest rates would certainly solve your problem with buybacks, like you said. But that actually is more insidious through the entire economy. And, you know, ta just taxing buybacks, maybe that's a good idea. Um, you know, and taxing, you know, these uh, carried interest loopholes that have existed for hedge funds um, for a long time. You know, that's probably something that could be done as well. That would help raise some additional tax revenue and really doesn't impact that many people. Um, it's very it's a very small amount of people. Um, and, but I agree with you in, in terms of, you know, this idea of, of estate taxes, because this is something that millennials in particular should be voting against because they're the ones that stand to inherit several trillion dollars of, of capital through estates getting transferred to them and they're voting for the very thing that's going to strip a lot of their wealth away from them if they do pass these higher estate taxes well i think it's that they don't understand exactly what that means to them um you know i've had a lot of clients in the past say oh man i can't 
you know, my, my kids feel one way about millionaires. They think they're terrible. And then I tell them, well, hey, if I die, you're, you're a going to be a millionaire. And they're like, whoa, hey, th their thoughts change very quickly. Um, and and if, if people knew more, you know, I, I think that needs to be a, a discussion amongst people about how that actually works. This is going to be the largest wealth transfer from baby boomers to the millennial generation that we've ever seen. And so this is going to have a significant impact. And this is something that's extremely aggressive. You know, initially Biden was saying that he wanted to do this tax. And so it's basically double taxation if you do capital gains and the estate tax right. over anything over a million bucks. That's a that's a lot of people. I mean, that's a lot of small businesses. So think about what happens there. You're going to have to increase your uh, you're going to decrease your headcount. Mm -hmm. You're going to likely have to just to just to make ends meet here when somebody passes. If you have that transfer of a business or you have that ranch or a, a home that you've had in, a, in the estate for a long time, these are things that are going to be liquidated. Yeah. And it's going to have a significant impact, I think, on on jobs. It's going to have an impact on pricing. You know, we could see inflation from that as companies have to increase their prices just to make ends meet to pay these these lofty tax bills. Yeah. And I, so, yeah, I, I just have a suspicion though that all these taxes sound great. Um, I think there's even a lot of moderate Democrats that are going to vote against a lot of these tax hikes, which may stall this whole budget expansion that they're trying to do in Congress yep. over the next month or so. I think this will be a very interesting kind of battle to watch here. Uh, when we come back from the break, 15% uh, correction by the end of the year. That's what Morgan Stanley saying. We'll talk about the risk of that and your money with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. You know, it's really important to understand what you're voting for and the things that you are asking for and there's implications to all of these things and you know it's, it's interesting if you ever look at we, every morning we have to look at google trends to see kind of what are the keywords that people are searching for and those type of things and the stuff that people search for is amazingly vapid i mean it's just you know there's a lot of stuff is like really this is what you're interested in looking at um you know, there, there are big, important issues. And again, there's an old saying, it says you get the government that you vote for. And the problem is, is that so many Americans are financially illiterate and they don't want to know about finances. You know, they, they want to know about how to trade stocks, right, or buy Bitcoin because it's going up and they can make some quick money with it. But really understanding the dynamics of finance, understanding the importance of how money works within the economy, not just for you personally, but in the economy, has very profound impacts. And the reason that 80% of Americans don't have any money saved in the bank, the reason that 90% of Americans you know, carry excess debt, um, the reason that the vast majority of Americans have to go into $4,000 a year of debt just to maintain their standard of living is all because of simply the function that we don't understand basic finance and we don't teach it in school we don't teach it to our kids to any great degree um and and then when there is this idea and the media promotes these ideas of unfairness within the economy it's like yeah let's go tax the rich without thinking about what the what the trickle down effect of those things are going to be and let me tell you one thing here and then I'm gonna, we'll, we'll get to our bigger story there is a reason why the rich are, are supporting socialistic ideas. The reason that the rich support socialistic ideas is because it passes the tax burden from them to the lower class. 
there's no socialist country where there is a big middle class. It is either predominantly a small class with a very large, a very, a, a, a very large smaller class with a very rich elite and the smaller population that, that have the least amount of money, they're the ones that are supporting the vast majority of the economy. So socialism is not something that creates equality among people in terms of wealth. It creates equality in terms of poorness among people. Everything moves to the very lowest level, and it passes the tax burden from the rich to the poor. So this is why socialism sounds great on the surface until you realize why the rich are, are going along with this and actually the rich are supporting the ideas. Guys like Bernie Sanders, there's a reason he's supporting these ideas of socialists, socialism, right? He's got multiple properties all around the country. He's financially well off. Why is he supporting socialism? Considering he used capitalism to get his wealth to begin with. Just something to think about. Well, oh, okay. he, he knows exactly how this is going to work. And, you know, one thing that I do see predominantly happen amongst wealthier families as well is that they're teaching their children about finances. They're yeah. bringing them into meetings. And you don't see that with the, the lower middle class. You don't okay. see that same type of communication amongst, uh, you know, with their kids and their family and teaching them things as, you know, to, to give them that experience. And I think that's where you also see a leg up. I mean, there's a there's a gaping hole in personal finance 101. You know, this $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill we've talked about, or, or I guess it's not the infrastructure bill now, but it's, uh, you know, the, the social programs, the education. I really hope that the education aspect, at some point they start to focus on those things where they are communicating these things in school. You know, most kids get out of high school, they don't even know how to write a check. Not that people write checks that often anymore, right? Uh, mm. But they sure as heck know how to get on Robinhood or, or trade Bitcoin or, you know, these little things, which I think these are good, but they don't understand the markets and how they actually work. And most of these people have never even seen a market, but we've, we've seen a decline. Right. And that's another bigger problem. And so, you know, but talking about that, that finance 101, you know, one thing I do want to mention is that Rich, Richard Rosso and I are going to be doing a uh, retirement right lane class. It's going to be in the woodlands. We're actually going to do this in person again on the 18th. So go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Go sign up. We'd love to have you there. Uh, we are just because people are going to be distanced a bit, uh, not going to have as much room as we typically do. So, you know, it is filling up quickly. I would recommend going and, and, and signing up. Uh, everybody's going to have their own space. But we're going to talk about all these <laughs> agenda items, right? We're going so to talk about the So tax. basically what Danny's saying is they rented 27 hotel rooms. So, you know, <laughs> they're just going to go door to door and have the class. So. We're going to knock on the door. You're going to stand. Yeah, no. No, that's not how it's going to work. But, I know. Uh, but we're going to be talking about all these things that we talk about on the show, you know, from a tax perspective, uh, from how do you invest and keep money in your pocket? You know, what what are all these things that, you know, you need to be prepared for? And, you know, kind of a segue, I guess, Lance, talking about Morgan Stanley, you brought mm -hmm. up their CIO is predicting a, a 10 to 15 percent crash before the year end, which let's face it. <laughs> That's that's pretty typical in any given year that you're going to see I was a 10 say, pullback. You know, this, this is the funny thing, right? It's like, and, and you said it too. And this is how the headline reads: a 15 percent a 15 percent crash is not a crash, right? That's a correction. Yeah. That is a normal entry year correction that virtually happens every single year in the market. Five to 10 percent correction is completely normal. Um, and and yet now we it's been so long since we've had a correction of any consequence. We have one of the longest stretches on record without a retest of the 200-day moving average, which is only 10 percent lower than where we are now. So again, not that big of a deal, but a very long stretch here. But you know, it's been so long since we've had a correction that uh, you know, of 5%, of 10%. I mean, you know, we have a correction of 1% or 2% and CNBC starts running, markets in turmoil, you know, 
<laughs> you know, it's like we're down one percent for the day or two percent for the week. Markets in turmoil. We gotta, we gotta, you know, get all the experts on why the market just crashed two whole percent. Uh, the problem with a ten percent correction is going to feel like a crash because we haven't seen that type of pullback in markets in so long now. People have forgotten that that's even possible. It's amazing well, how fast. Psychology. We, yeah. yeah, it's just amazing how fast we forget. You know, we just had a thirty-five percent correction in March of twenty twenty, and everybody's completely forgotten about that. We because of one hundred twenty billion dollars in QE, and you know, it's it's been a great ride from the lows. If you happen to buy the very bottom, you've done great. Most people didn't, but you know, that's where that's where you are. Um, but again, this is you know, it is interesting because this all kind of ties in. And, and you, you brought up an interesting point. You said most, uh, you know, kind of a lot of these young millennials and things that are coming in the market. Gen Zers are a really interesting group. Um, Gen Zers were born in 19 between 1995 and 2005. And that means in 2009, they were basically five to 16 years old. Right. So they weren't even old enough to invest in the markets or really understand what happened in the markets during the financial crisis. They've only seen a market over the last 12, 10, 11, 12 years that has done nothing but just go up. Um, so a lot of these kind of Gen Zers, they're doing a lot of the things that we've seen in the past, taking on personal debt, taking on credit card debt, et cetera, to invest in markets. Because they really don't understand the consequence of what happens when you ultimately have. Right now, it seems like there's a no-risk game, right? I, I take an equity loan out of my house. I invest in the stock market. I've got my house, and I'm making money hand over fist in the markets. Why wouldn't I do that? The problem is, is that ultimately what they don't understand is there's going to be a crash, and you're not only going to lose the value of the assets in your portfolio, now you're also stuck with the debt. So you know, this these are the type of financial behaviors that – we don't teach kids and they're going to learn the hard way. And this is what damaged. We saw this happen after the dot-com crash. We saw families devastated after that dot-com crash for exactly the same reason. Saw the same thing happen after the financial crisis. And it's going to happen to, to the Gen Zers in the next crisis when it occurs. And that's not, it's not a function of when it occurs. It's just a function of, or sorry, of, of if it occurs, but when it occurs, it's just a function of time, but they're also going to be devastated by it. And it's going to, and this is what keeps perpetuating this problem of wealth inequality in the, in the country. Rich people don't make stupid investment decisions. Poor people do. Well, I think everybody makes stupid investment decisions well, at one time or another. But yeah. well, it's because it's a very emotional. And so, it's well, but we, well, my, my point, though, is, is that, yes, yeah. everybody makes them, but you don't make massive ones. Uh, the reason that people have wealth is because they've been fairly smart about making their investments either in businesses or real estate or whatever it is. And you take a look Correct. at high net worth individuals. They don't have 100% of their money in the stock market. The vast majority of their money is in bonds, cash, and real estate, and they have about 20% of their equity ownership in the stock market. That's right. But you can also make the argument that that's not there for the lower income classes to, to take advantage sure. of. Sure. You know, and that's always going to be the argument. And that, that will that's an argument that will stand the test of time as well because you don't have that same type of opportunity as somebody who has a lot more money. And that's easier to accumulate wealth when you have wealth. And so I think that, you know, it's it, that's a difficult problem to to overcome and we're not going to do it by these social welfare programs right well and look and, and again going back to the education part getting yourself into debt to buy to live a standard of living that you shouldn't be living right buying a three hundred fifty thousand dollar house versus a hundred fifty thousand dollar house right that's what keeps you from building wealth you know there's you know there's stories 
endless stories of people that came to this country with a nickel in their pocket, literally, and built multi-million dollar empires uh, for themselves, you know, through starting a dry cleaner or, you know, going door to door, washing cars, whatever it was. There's all these these stories are out there and they're plentiful. Uh, Books have been written, Billionaire Next Door, right? You can build wealth. You have the opportunity. Everybody has opportunity. And that's the beautiful thing about capitalism. Everybody has the ability to participate in the system and to build wealth. It's just a function of do you want to sacrifice today for what you want tomorrow? You know, this is one of of Dave Ramsey's famous lines is live like nobody else today so you can live like nobody else tomorrow. That's absolutely the basis of capitalism. We just choose not to do it because we, you know, the younger younger crowd wants the YOLO, right? You only live once. Let's spend it all today because you may not be here tomorrow. Um, What a great marketing scheme, right? (laughs) Right? Look, credit card companies and banks are predatory in this very manner. They're the ones that are offering out people credit cards that really have no ability to and, and no need to be getting further into debt. You know, the banks are complicit in creating the wealth disparities that we see in the economy. Quick break. We'll be back. Wrap up the show. We'll get back to that crash part. I meant to tell you, we'll, we'll tell you why that may be the real issue coming up right after the break. Uh, going back to this idea of this 10 to 15 percent crash in the markets, Morgan Stanley talking about this uh, yesterday, something that really is not that far fetched. And uh, again, it's been so long since we've seen a correction. It's 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 hard to imagine such. And I've done a couple of interviews this week. I did one with Business Insider a uh, day before yesterday. Um, I did one with Market Watch a few days ago. And it's interesting because they're they're you know they call me up and they ask me a question they're like Lance so so you think there's going to be a crash you know coming I was like no that's not what I'm saying what I'm saying and if you read what I wrote is is that a five to a ten percent correction is very likely and it's very normal well that would be like a crash right I mean it could go down twenty percent it's like well yeah that's possible because once that you start a correctional process that's been larger than you've seen in the past. Uh, like over the last year, and there's no volatility. When the people start running for the exits, they can tend to run, you know, further past the exit than you expect. So sure, it's is you know we could go to the you know, 10% correction, the 200-day moving average, and go right through it. Um, particularly if you start kind of a, sta- a seller stampede, it's certainly possible. So, you know, it's possible. You need to be aware of the risk. That's the point, right? So the headlines come out. Strategist says there's going to be a 20% crash in the markets. That's not what I said at all. But, you know, it makes for great headlines. But that's the, but, you know, the, the important thing to understand is we've gone a very long time without a correction. And the odds of a correction are growing simply because of the length of time that you have gone without a correction and you can't have a moving average without the prices of of the prices trading both above and below that average over a period of time so you're going to have a correction the only question is is what causes it that could be the fed coming out uh this month i think week after next we've got the fed meeting and they could be saying hey you know what we're going to start tapering now right the markets aren't expecting that it'll be something unexpected and exogenous that that creates a shift in psychology that leads people to start selling and selling will beget more selling and you'll get a correction that's not the end of the world i would love a correction simply because i've got 20 percent in cash i need to put to work and i'm waiting for an opportunity to buy some stuff that i want to buy cheaper that's it. It's an opportunity to invest capital, not to be all worried about it. But again, 
you know, headlines is, is what gets clicks, right? So we need to be dramatic about these things. <laughs> but um, look, markets are very extended. They're very overbought. There's very weak internals, no matter how you measure it. Number of advancers and decliners, 50-day uh, stocks above their 50-day moving average, stocks above their 200-day moving average, very, very weak internal participation, very low volatility, highly complacent markets. These are all, this is, this is basically the kindling for the fire. What you need is a match. And nobody knows today, tomorrow, next week, next month, what that match will be. It won't be the Delta variant. It won't be economic data because we already know that stuff. It's already priced into the markets. It'll be something that the markets are not aware of. And this is, this is you know, I, and this, I use this analogy a lot because it's very appropriate for how markets work. And I had a good question this morning. I was talking about Bitcoin and this kind of crash in Bitcoin that occurred yesterday. This El Salvador says, hey, we're going to accept Bitcoin as legal currency. And as soon as that happened, there was a 20% plunge immediately in Bitcoin. Um, margin, margin accounts were being liquidated. I mean, it's just nightmare for guys. Um, but this is the point about the markets. You know, the, the question I got was, is, well, how, how come you don't have this disorderly move on the way up, only on the way down? It's because it was going into the theater, everybody's being completely normal, right? You walk into a movie theater you, you, with your popcorn and your kids, and you slap your kid in the head to get him to sit down where he's supposed to sit down. And not really, I'm just teasing people. Are like, child abuse! Um, <laughs> but you get your kids, sit down, you get them all in the right place. It's orderly to some degree, right? It's orderly going into the theater. So everybody's now in the theater, Right. And this is the markets. This is how markets work. The, the entrance into the market is very orderly. And then some Yahoo on the very front of the row stands up and starts screaming fire, right? And now all of a sudden, everybody's just in a panic rush. They're just throwing everything down, stepping on kids, trying to get out of the theater. That's the problem with markets. The exit from the theater is not orderly. And everybody's trying to get through a very small exit all at one time. And this is why you have these you know, kind of gentle, these, these rises up are, you know, you run at a 45 degree angle basically. And then your, your exit is a 90 degree decline. So that's just how markets work. The, the exits are never orderly and it's that panic to get out of markets that create these very sharp declines. And so that's why you can have a 10 to 15% correction very quickly in markets Will it occur? Yes. When will it occur? Have no idea. But it is coming. Will it happen before the end of the year? It depends. I think a lot of it depends on what the Fed does. And, you know, uh, uh, the Fed, uh, uh, Fed member Bullard out this morning talking about we need to taper sooner than later. And I think that's the risk is that the Fed does something that the markets aren't expecting the markets don't expect the fed to taper at all they're looking at the employment report going that was weak enough to keep them from tapering i don't think they're paying attention to inflation danny mentioned this earlier wage inflation is soaring right now inflation by the end of this year will be north of four percent i think that puts the fed into a, a bad position you've got weakening economic growth and rising inflation they're going to be trapped between do i support economic growth or do i combat price stability and i think price stability potentially wins out that's not what the market's thinking. That's what creates your correction. But that could be now, November, December, could be January, February. Don't know when that's going to happen, but it'll happen. So, Danny, thoughts? Well, go, going back to our, our conversation last segment, 
Nobody wants to talk about all of the things that you should be doing to protect assets. Nobody wants to talk about when you had 50 new all-time highs in one year that maybe it would be a good time to take some chips off the table. It's like we talked about with all of the uh, the YouTubers who are now out there and and basically they're not professional investors, but they just talk about what they do all day and they invest. And, and you've said it. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to hear about what do you do with if something goes wrong or the market goes down? They only want to hear about how you can make money quick. What's the quickest way to go make money? And everybody, you got to be all in. And nobody has that process on trying to protect assets. And that's where I think the bigger problem lies. And that's why everybody hits the exit all at once, because there is no orderly exit. There is no way for people to, if you don't have a, a plan or a strategy, just and everybody hits it at once, you think, oh, shoot, I've got to go too. Well, then it's too late right. because now you're at the back of the line and you're, 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 you're waiting your turn to get out. And unfortunately, in markets, it's likely going to be at a much lower price than what you wanted. But by that point, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I've got to protect what I have. And, and that's where I think this becomes much more problematic. And, you know, that that big event that occurs, who knows what it will be? You know, the one thing I, I, I do disagree with a little bit, Lance, was that think back, think back to 2018. We knew they were raising interest rates. Mm -hmm. And yet the market dropped 20 percent in that fourth quarter. Right. So some of these things may be something that we do know is coming. And it's just a well, matter of, you know, like at that time, Powell said, hey, we're a long way from neutral. That's suggesting but, that there were going to be many more. Right. And that was that, and expected. that was what the market didn't expect was that statement. That, That's true. And that was and, and again. The market didn't expect that. The, the market was okay with him hiking rates, but he thought they, the market thought he was almost done by October, by September of hiking rates. Then he comes out with that statement, oh, we got a long ways to go. And that's, the market was like, oh, we didn't price that in. And that was the problem. So you know, the, the point is ultimately it's whatever triggers it. It'll be something to your point, very unexpected, kind of like George Costanza at the birthday party and some of the kid yells fire. He's like pushing the kids out of the way to get out of the, the house. Um, that, that's what it's like uh, when it happens, and we, we kind of forget that. Uh, I had a couple of questions. You know, what about you know Evergrande, which is this uh, major Chinese conglomerate um, that is virtually going into default now? It is. We talked about this a bit yesterday on the show. You know, it's the Lehman potentially of China. Is that something that triggers the markets? Maybe. Probably not at this point. I suspect the Chinese government will just bail out the bank and bail out all their subsidiaries that need financing. They have a tendency to do that. So I doubt that's going to be the problem. Uh, another question was, what about war with Taiwan? You know, the problem is, is those are those geopolitical risks are out there. The market's already aware of it. And, you know, if all of a sudden tomorrow we woke up and there was war with Taiwan um, and the U.S. was getting drug into it, um, markets may take a hit for a day or two. Then the markets are going to go, hey, wait a minute, war's good for the defense sector. Let's go buy defense stocks. So, you know, we can look back at history, uh, Afghanistan and everything else, uh, going back to the war on terror after 9-11. Uh, markets didn't re react very negatively to those events. In fact, you know, you go back to 2001, 2002, as we were finishing the dot-com crash, it was actually going into to Iraq that actually started to form the bottom in the markets at that point. And, and turn the markets up because money started flowing back into the defense sector. So, again, it's just, you know, the thing that's going to disrupt the market is going to be something credit-related. Evergrande could be that risk. I doubt it because I think China will bail them out. I could be wrong. We'll see. Um, but generally, the thing that really upsets the market at some point is something on the credit side. Um, and whatever causes that is, is something we just don't know because, again, it'll be something that is unexpected. Last couple of points here. Just wanted to kind of wrap up uh, as we get showed. So, Danny, when is your um, lunch and learn? 
So I'm no, not. not lunch and learn. We're Sorry. actually doing this in person, Lance. Come on. It's uh, it's going to be September 18th. It's in the Woodlands at the Hyatt Centric. We'd love to see you guys out. This is going to be our first event, and I feel like it's it's well, it is years uh, <laughs> that we're going to do something live. So it'll be nice to actually uh, you know see people, have yeah. conversations, and uh, so go sign up realinvestmentadvice.com. We'd love to have you guys out. Lots of good questions, lots of great information, especially in this kind of uncertain period where we don't exactly know where taxes are going, but we can give you some good ideas as far as what you can do to keep more money in your pocket. Right. And that's on the 18th. So um, sign up now. If you simply go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, scroll down to our event section. Uh, you can simply just sign up there for it. We'd love to see you there. It's always a lot of fun. Danny, thanks so much for your time today. Um, be sure and stick around. Three minutes on markets and money are coming up. We're going to talk a little bit more about Bitcoin this morning on our three-minute episode, what happened yesterday and what this might mean for Bitcoin's future. Um, also, um, we've got our latest reports out on our website. Michael Leibowitz has a very interesting report out this morning talking about inflation and the housing number inside of inflation. This homeowner's equivalent rent is completely BS, and he gets down to the bottom of that in this morning's article on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. So get by the website. Uh, you'll find everything you want there from our video, our podcast, as well as our blog post and our newsletter. It's all there for you, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow.